Welcome to the Twimmel AI Podcast. I'm your host, Sam Charrington. Without further ado, I would like to welcome up uh, the moderator of our first panel, Maribel Lopez, founder of Lopez Research. Maribel? Hi, I'm Maribel Lopez. So I'm the founder of Lopez Research and also the founder of Data for Betterment, which is a nonprofit organization that helps companies figure out how to move forward in the land of AI and giving them information about career change and other things in that area. And I could think of no better thing to do than to be here today talking about culture and organization and how to do things like effectively have machine learning at scale. So without further ado, I'm going to jump right in it. You know, one of the things that we're seeing with organizations is that there's a tremendous amount of talk about artificial intelligence in organizations. Not necessarily a lot of companies or executives or line of business people actually really understanding what that means, how to do it. Uh, sometimes it's like, I'm just going to go out and, you know, buy something with machine learning in it and see how that works out. So one of the challenges I think that all of you in the organization are facing is how do we get the different groups in an organization to effectively work together? So if we look at this, if you have a data science team, uh, data engineering, how do you actually work with line of business managers? How do you work with the C-suite so that you can actually get to delivering business value with AI technologies and tools. So I thought that might be a good first place to start as we're talking about culture and um, organization, because technically you probably can't decide what kind of organization you want to switch it to, centralized or decentralized, but you will have to try to make this effective and efficient and delivering business value. So maybe we could start there. Um, maybe we will start with Jennifer. You want to give us a few points or tips or how you've seen this work in terms of talking to the different groups within an organization. Yeah, no, I saw, uh, as you stated before, completely agree that this is certainly like a, uh, a, a probably a bigger challenge than the technology itself, right? So the first thing I would say is like, first of all, I have very good news. It's that uh, there is a very easy way to solve the way you communicate with the C-suite or product management, and that is by uh, educating uh, the people you're going to communicate with. And the easiest way to do this is to go all the way to an MBA program and, and teach them and basically prepare the next generation of leaders uh, and product managers to be ready to uh, interact with uh, people who are going to handle uh, machine learning research and, and machine learning product. Right? So we're basically in survival mode right now. It means that we have to figure out a way to make it until this next generation of leaders becomes uh, comes, uh, comes in place and uh, uh, these are actually the people we're either reporting to or working with. Right? I mean, so, uh, so in the meantime, obviously, there are different segments. And so to me personally, like uh, one of the biggest uh, challenge I always had was like uh, define what product management means for, for machine learning. But that's a, that's a long, long story probably. <laughs> okay, we're going to circle back to defining what uh, project management means in machine learning in a second. Um, Eric, maybe you have some thoughts on this. Um, well, sure. Well, I think one 
thing you can do uh, to align yourself with the C-suite is you can become the C-suite. So at Stitch Fix, we do have a special arrangement. I am the chief algorithms officer, an officer of the company, uh, up there peers with the CFO and CTO and so forth. Um, so that does help change things. It's easier to get alignment as peers rather than um, somewhere buried down the org um, structure. With officer representation, what happens is you become accountable. You, you're not um, a supportive team to other folks. Instead, you have your own goals, revenue goals or other metrics, right, that you are accountable for not supporting another team. And so that changes things dramatically on how the, the company embraces data science. And the other thing that happens with officer representation is you get uh, influence. You can influence the way companies work. Um, and you can do away with the notion of big ideas and instead companies have hypotheses that are put to the test. And, it, and once the company learns after a short period of time that they're wrong a lot, then they start to change the way they do even engineering where they're not going to build a certain feature. They're going to build a uh, general platform to try 100 features because Lord knows the first one's going to be wrong and you, you need to iterate and, and do things a little more generally. Um, so that's one way to go about it is if you um, get the actual officer representation um, and it's, uh, I'll be honest, it's a much easier way to do it than to try to manage it from down below. So if, you have, if you're uh, fortunate enough to be in that situation, it actually is uh, something I highly recommend. Yeah, I know. Part is you actually are in a company that has a lot of data behind it and a lot of data science behind it, but there's also a lot with the marketing organization and sales. So how have you looked at approaching this problem in your organization? Absolutely. Um, I The way I uh, approached working with sales and marketing is kind of the same way as I think about uh, data science working with these various product teams. Nowadays, you know, you have uh, continuous integration and you have uh, online products, products in the cloud. So uh, products are being launched almost every day and product is changing every day. Um, and uh, because of that, the way data science is working with the engineering teams needs to be fully integrated, looking at every feature launch, every experiment, every kind of... Um, change uh, in order to make sure that the data reflects that and we're accounting for it for in building our um, models, updating our models and so on. And so is the same with sales and marketing uh, because in the past there were like various versions of let's say uh, a product Windows 95 and um, the specifications were already made clear. There was enough time for sales, marketing to understand what the market would be like uh, but also be able to fully understand the product to go and sell. Um, now that's changing. The product is changing so fast. Uh, in order for sales to know what to sell, uh, they need to be as integrated within the kind of product uh, as much as possible to know exactly, okay, you know, the real estate on the app is going to be one-tenth of what it used to be, so we need to communicate that to our partners. Or uh, the targeting algorithm will change, and so this um, we're actually going to bring in 10 times more traffic to your, your product, um, and so sales could kind of be in the loop for that to be able to uh, communicate that to the partners, and that's how we can like set marketing and sales up for success. 
Excellent. That makes sense. Having that data and insight to know what's going to happen next so that they can plan and make changes to their models is important. Now, uh, we had a session earlier uh, where Levi's was talking about some other things that they did. So that's a long-standing established company. Jennifer, I know that you actually have done some work with Walmart in the past. Have you seen any uh, differences in terms of how to think about that? They're a company that's had a lot of data that's been working with data for a long time. Did you see a change happen over the course of the time that you worked there in terms of how they worked with it? So when when I joined Walmart, actually, so one of the big change I had to provide to the companies, like, I think, and uh, you were talking about uh, integration earlier, right? I mean, so something I, w I also would like to state here is that I think one of the biggest challenge, like, a machine learning team uh, is going to have is lack of uh, integration with, uh, with engineering, right? Because if you do have that integration, it puts you in a position where you are fully responsible for what you're building, right? I mean, so it's almost like you, you, you do some machine learning research, you can create a product with it and prove to the C-suite and the rest of the organization that this is actually going to provide money for the company, right? So uh, before we talk about Walmart, I would like to state something else that's actually pretty interesting. So uh, I was lucky to have both, like, a, uh, I, I managed like a machine learning at Atlassian and I managed uh, machine learning at a smaller startup figure eight, right? And so uh, in, in both cases, we have the different structure. So for Atlassian, for instance, I was really lucky to have like a, the opportunity to build the entire team from scratch, uh, and 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 basically, I brought in like a, basically 50% of the team was engineering, right? I mean, so it meant that the algorithms we were building, we were actually able to create and fully prototype on our own, and uh, it was much easier to push this production. Now we, we had other challenges related to uh, uh, the internal organization within Atlassian, where you had to push that into specific products. But at least there was a prototype that could exist, right? By a position, when I was at Figure Eight, like my team was 100% machine learning scientist uh, and uh, and this is something I had no control of because the team was already established when I joined uh, and unfortunately basically like we were like uh, constantly frustrated that things would not go to production because there was no engineering that could actually like a uh, engineering team that could bring these things to uh, to production right so that brings me back to uh, Walmart right I think one of the challenges like uh, the companies like a few years ago did not necessarily have this uh, understanding that a machine learning team is not an engineering team they don't think the same way, they don't function the same way, and a machine learning scientist or data scientist is not trained to write production level code and push this to production, right? And so, uh, and, and basically, uh, this means you have to rethink the organization, right? I mean, so at Walmart, was, was, that was a huge challenge because, like, uh, uh, when the machine learning teams started building, like, uh, uh, new algorithms, for instance, and in particular, when you're like, we, we know that because we are machine learning people, we, we know that models need to be retrieved on a regular basis, but the C-suite, except if the C-suite is a machine learning scientist, does not know that. Like, you would be surprised the number of people like, hey, you, you created this algorithm, why do you have to retrain it, right? And, yes. and this is not something that's... Uh, and so this is where machine learning life cycle management is something you have to push onto the organization if you want to be successful. I actually think this point of machine learning lifecycle management is a huge issue and largely uh, under-addressed in our communities. So, um, Eric, do you have any concepts or thoughts around uh, either a full stack or um, lifecycle management? Well, yeah, I have strong opinions on the full stack thing. So I, I, uh, the team at Stitch Fix we built to, be, um, to avoid what we call handoffs. We don't like... Um, when, a, say, a research scientist wants to do some modeling, so they 
partner with somebody called an ETL developer to get them the data. And then once they find the model, they have it trained, they hand it off to a um, machine learning engineer to implement it. Um, and then they also might employ an inference engineer to uh, measure it, right? So all that is fine and dandy, but it requires handoffs between that, and that slows you down. Um, Handoffs are appropriate when it when you know what it is you're building. Say if you, you're manufacturing something, you've got it, the requirements are crystal clear down to the millimeter of precision, then you can specialize and do those handoffs. But when it needs to be iterated on, you don't you're not clear what you, it is you're building or learning, then I really prefer to have it in as few hands as possible. If, ideally, even sometimes one one full stack data scientist that can do all those parts, do the ETL, do the modeling, uh, implement it him or herself, and set up the A/B test appropriately to measure it. Um, that's ideal because that person can move as quickly as possible with no handoffs. So. Um, and again, the benefit of what, the goal in data science is to learn something, to implement some new algorithmic capability, um, preferably that makes a lot of money, but to learn it, to figure out how to do it. It's not to do the fine tuning, not to do something more efficient or um, you know just to skim a, a few pennies off of something. It's usually to do something big and and profound and something that was. Um, new to the company, a new capability. And that type of thing, usually with data products, you can't design it up front. You need to learn as you go. So you have to design the team to enable them to learn as they go so they don't get caught up in so many handoffs. Um, so that's the thought on the full stack data scientists, as we call it, at Stitch Fix. Yeah, so what, what I like about this is it, it highlights that there are different ways to do it, but you have to be very specific about understanding what are the different levels that you need and who is going to take care of those different levels. And I think um, if you're lucky enough and you can find full stack people, that works great. If you don't have full stack people, you need to know how that you're going to break this up so that the right people are doing what they're skilled at, but that they're coordinated enough to make that happen. Um, Pardis, any thoughts on your side? Um, I, I, I guess the only thing I would add would be around um, the fact that uh, the data is always changing because, as, as we spoke before, the product is always changing. Uh, it's also the fact that, you know, sometimes company strategy might be changing, and so you'd want to update your objective functions and um, accordingly. Um, and um, another thing is the data could change because the... Um, you know, your product is growing so fast in additional markets and suddenly you have uh, users using the product in a completely different way uh, if you're lucky. Um, and so uh, all of those various factors kind of uh, change, you know, the your product completely. And so uh, you'd want to be have people providing always on support uh, to be able to make those changes and updates as soon as possible. I'm going to circle back to lifecycle management, and maybe we can go down this way and just talk a little bit about um, what you think is or isn't happening there and what you think needs to happen there. So, Eric, why don't we kick off with you? Uh, sure. For lifecycle management, so the process I just described earlier is about an initial implementation of some new capability. And that's what I think goes fastest without the handoffs, without the specialization. You have more of a general full-stack data scientist. That said, once it's in production, 
supporting it is hard. And so you'll probably need some help. Um, and in fact, that's something that's often unintuitive to folks uh, either from the business side or engineering side is they think that resources will roll off a project once it's implemented. And that doesn't happen. You increase the number of resources you put. So if something is successful, a new recommendation engine or something, and it's live now, it's not like you deploy those people to go somewhere else. No, they double down on it. They have their best ideas come after implementation. And they can get better, um, better and better algorithms in there um, by testing them against each other and, and, and uh, making successive changes to them. So you end up usually increasing, not decreasing after implementation. Um, and then the support stuff is problematic. It, it becomes more of a burden than actually building the thing. Um, as, as you mentioned, data changes a lot and it could wreak havoc on your stuff. Um, a new engineering feature goes out and isn't compatible with your algorithm. Um, things need to be adjusted and changed um, pretty constantly. And uh, that's when you, so you, again, it might take one single person to implement the capability, but you need to start staffing up that team to support it. Um, as uh, you know, that person eventually wants to take a vacation now and then, right, and, and doesn't want to be left um, supporting uh, from wherever they go on vacation. And so you need to add resources later, and that's something that needs to be kind of explained and anticipated. But I wouldn't. I, we do a kind of a tough thing uh, at district. We we wait till it's successful and then start adding the resources. So it's always a scramble because a lot of things do fail, and you don't want to set up people. Hey, you're going to support that thing once it's in production, but it never gets to production. So you end, you end up in this game of catch-up by design. It's, we consider it as the lesser of the two evils. Um, but you do have to plan as best you can that, okay, if these things are successful, we've got to get ready to staff up to help support. All right. No, I mean, so going back like to the example with uh, with uh, Walmart, right? I mean, so actually when I was at Walmart and we had like uh, uh, more and more models coming out to production. So I actually started surveying my team for basically ask them like for every like a new model that's coming in, how much more work do you have? And so uh, after I surveyed my entire team, turns out that uh, uh, when we were like uh, basically like in periods where the models had to be retrained frequently, for example, close to Black Friday or this, this type of periods or close to Christmas, uh, uh, people were spending like uh, almost 75% of their time retraining models, relaunching things because there was no pipeline to do this automatically. So actually like one of my uh, uh, but my pushbacks on management was like we need like a way to systematize the way that you actually like uh, uh, deploy and retrain the models specifically in an environment where you need to retrain models every day. Like uh, it's very typical for uh, e-commerce or uh, similar spaces. I'm sure it's, uh, it's true for social media as well, right? Uh, and yeah, and so uh, eventually what I saw as being a problem, so I almost had the reverse problem at some point where it's almost like uh, you have to think about like what really life cycle management means, like when you, I'll come back to this later, right? But uh, when finally I convinced the company, like we need a systematic way to retrain this, like uh, using technology such as airflow to, you know, like uh, keep things going even after you uh, you, you move forward. Then the, the the management team almost had the sense that the model is taking care of itself, right? I mean, so it's going to be retrained fully automatically. And so this is where I think people are missing the point that in life cycle management, you have life cycle management. So cycle, is, and this is actually kind of important because to me, cycle means feedback, 
right? And so there is a huge missed opportunity when you try to fully automate this to take the feedback of the model you've trained and basically understand the failures, the reason why, you know, like uh, you didn't reach 100% accuracy and, and feed that information back into the system, right? And so uh, I, I think like uh, it goes back to like maintaining in the long term, right? I mean, a model and like uh, uh, fixing the failures you had at first and so forth and so on. And so uh, I, I think it's also important to see life cycle management as being an opportunity to get your model in a better place, not just keeping it up to, up to par or up to speed with the current data. Definitely, yeah, 100% agree with that. Just because so many things are changing around the model, whether it be um, like sometimes um, policy, there are policy changes, and so the way you're labeling your data will be will change, and uh, and you will need to then um, think about your model differently in that kind of space. Um, again, your um, the way that you will be um, your objective functions might change, and the uh, user users might change as as we talked about in a different geography and things like that. And I also wanted to like also reiterate something that uh, Eric was talking about around um, um, kind of headcount and the fact that if something is successful, you will need more, not less uh, people to kind of work on that project. And so if something is a high priority, uh, a lot of times you would hear, could we just borrow one or two data scientists to kind of think about or opportunity size this um, project? And it's usually, well, if this is going to be a priority, we need to like think about long-term data science support for this data product. Yeah, I think the one thing that you've heard a lot that you should really take away from this is that um, one, uh, because of some of the marketing messaging that's gone out around AI, people do think it's very automated. And that once you get something, that it does just take care of itself. And that is something that you really have to get ahead of because this concept of resources for whether it's um, new software or tooling so that you can create a more automated retraining pipeline flow or whether or not it's actual more headcount, um, this is going to be a thing in the culture and organization discussion that you definitely have to get ahead of. I remember talking to one bank that did not realize that they were, you know, they spent a long time going through their model and it was in the chat bot section. And they had to retrain it every day for a very long time because they didn't think that, well, people don't speak in terms such as activate my card. You know, that's something a bank would say, not something a human would typically say. You might say, turn on my card or some other variant of that. And those types of, you know, feedback loops and interesting learning meant that it takes a very long time, a lot longer than people think, which means also that programmatically, you probably have a pipeline and your pipeline's going to take a lot longer to get through than um, your management originally thought. Um, we have about three minutes left and I was wondering if there was one question in the audience that anybody would like to ask. If so... Want to raise a hand, stand up, or anything? Yeah, great talk about the educating the whole company about how building ML machine uh, and AI product is. I hear a lot is uh, some solution is to hire different people into the team, so the team actually have different kind of knowledge. They can help each other out. I think there's another dimension. I wonder what's your take is. There's a whole company. You can't solve all the problem. Like you need data. Are you going to build the entire data lake yourself? Are you going to build the entire computational layer for yourself as well? How would you educate the almost like it takes a whole village to build it? 
but you, you're right. I mean, there's uh, there's there are it's difficult. There are certain parts of uh, certain capabilities that the data science uh, team is um, totally autonomous for. But most things, you're partnering with somebody. They're sometimes with marketing or merchandising or other teams, and it does take a village. You need a lot of it, and a lot of times uh, integration with engineering. Um, but because data science works differently, right, much more iterative and much more uncertain, inherent uncertainty in what it is we're building and what we'll find and what becomes significant, um, you have to plan for that iteration. And since it's the data science team that works differently from the rest, um, what we've done is we've made it incumbent that we build the APIs that um, engineering will integrate with. They call the APIs, and that abstracts us, right? We're now behind an API that they're going to call, um, so we can change things and test things as much as we can, and it, we don't need to coordinate those, right? Because they're just calling the same API before. So little tricks like that really help to um, uh, decouple teams um, and yet still work together. We, all, we have to be aligned on the goals of what we're doing, and then when we work with marketing and merchants, um, for example, there is no, uh, there's no APIs for buying merchandise and, or for you know, making new creatives. Um, so those are more of a formal relationship that you have, and, and you want to blend um, both of their experiences. You get some of the domain expertise from marketers and merchants, um, what they know, and then also get what the data is telling you, which um, are sometimes very complementary or different or even contradictory. Um, and both together are usually much better than anyone on their own. So any other comments? No, so I, uh, what I was going to say, so you actually like a, a similar comment to what you just said, right? I mean, I just would like to, to build on top of that. So uh, at Atlassian, we had like a similar uh, kind of model. So we actually like the data science slash machine learning team was uh, under the platform uh, department. And so basically we're like a, a team that would service the other teams. And so uh, similarly to what you said, like we had like either APIs and we we're like basically in charge of building a model, right? So I think something that's very important to uh, note here, and I think like a uh, not, not specific to Atlassian or any company, right? There is like really like machine learning research and there is machine learning product, right? And so uh, for instance, like uh, you, I can imagine a company in which you have like the machine learning team, the deep, deep down machine learning team that creates, let's say an OCR model. And then there is a product or an applied machine learning team that actually applies this model to create cool new uh, AI products, right? And these don't need to be the same team, right? I mean, that's almost the way that I see that uh, it was actually pretty successful to do that at Atlassian because you, we would empower the rest of the organization of uh, integrating AI in their own products, even though they were not AI engineers or machine learning scientists themselves. Closing comment, Pardis? I think one aspect of um, being able to get buy-in to get more support from engineering on, let's say, uh, issues of data quality or building data pipelines was to show kind of the impact and the fact that they could move faster if, um, you know, through that collaboration, they would be able to uh, ship with more confidence and kind of showing that um, over a couple of uh, Doesn't slow them down, but speeds them up. Exactly. Excellent. So with that, thank you for your time and attention. We're finished. All right, everyone. That's our show for today. To learn more about today's guest or the topics mentioned in this interview, visit twimmelai.com. Of course, if you like what you hear on the podcast, please subscribe, rate, and review the show on your favorite podcatcher. Thanks so much for listening and catch you next time.